If you listen to several recordings of Verdi's La Traviata and compare how sopranos sing Violetta's famous Act One aria, Sempre Libera, they will all sing it slightly differently. Why do they do this? And how far can they go? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. In our last episode, we learned all about cadenzas, appoggiaturas, and variations in bel canto singing. I'm Naomi Baratera, and in this episode, we are thrilled to have Matthew Timmermans back with us for Performing Bel Canto, Do's, Don'ts, and Maybes, Part 2. As we saw in part one of Performing Bel Canto, Do's, Don'ts, and Maybes, a singer's variations can be designed to show off their specific capabilities, but they are first and foremost fundamental to realizing the composer's music. However, as we shall see in this episode, there are certain ways that composers and audiences expected singers to show off, ways they didn't, and as with all rules, some gray areas. For example, Sometimes passages written by the composers are too awkward or difficult for some singers to perform, for reasons including breath control or syllable placement. The recomposition of the vocal line to suit these singers is referred to in Italian as puntatura. In the 19th century, singers performed multiple operatic roles in one season, not all of which were always appropriate for their voices. Puntatura were used by composers or added by performers to tailor the music to the singer. Unlike today, when singers fly across the globe to perform a select few roles that they choose to specialize in, singers in the 19th century could not travel as easily. So, these singers had to perform a wide range of roles in one season that were usually not written for their specific voices because almost all bel canto operas were written for a specific cast. Although there isn't the same need for puntatura today because singers are more selective about the roles they perform, they are still regularly used and considered tradition because they are passed down from teacher to student and captured on records, much like the cadenzas we heard. In fact, we just heard two in Sutherland's finale to Leonora's aria in Il Trovatore. First, after she sings the words, ah si, Sutherland drops the first note of the next phrase, reducing it to a scale up to a high B. 
By omitting this note, she sings the remaining scale using the vowel a, rather than the word conte, which Verdi wrote. In a performance at La Scala in 2000 conducted by Riccardo Mutti, soprano Barbara Frittoli sings the passage as written, with the notes other than removed before the scale, and using the word conte. Second, instead of singing Chanderol twice before flying up to a climactic high C, Sutherland omitted the first two iterations of this word to prepare for the high note. Then, her husband and conductor, Richard Bonning, added two extra orchestral repetitions to elongate Sutherland's glory on the high note. By listening again to Fritoli, we can hear how the finale sounds as Verdi wrote it. Let's hear the difference between Fritoli and Sutherland's interpretations. contrast and a bit of fun, see if you can hear how Leontine Price, one of the most iconic Leonoras with no less than three complete studio recordings of this role, alters the high C on the 1969 RCA recording of Trovatore. sure you noticed, Price sings the Chanderos unlike Sutherland, but after them she takes time to breathe before the final high note, thereby cutting it in half. Another example of a puntatura occurs during the cabaletta of Violetta's famous aria, Sempre Libera, at the end of Act One in Verdi's La Traviata. At the beginning of the aria, when Violetta launches up to the first of many high seas, Sopranos will often prematurely finish the word, ritrovi, all on the same note, hastily catch a breath, and then launch up to the high C on an A vowel, rather than sing the written end, V, of ritrovi. Unlike Kalas in that 1953 Phonit Chetra recording, 
and numerous other singers on record, Tiziana Fabricini, known singularly for her visceral portrayal of Violetta, sings this section without puntatura in a 1992 performance at La Scala, conducted by Mutti. The end of Sempre Libera also contains one of the most well-known and demanded instances of an interpolated high note, a note sung higher than it's written. Verdi wrote the end of the aria like this. But it can be sung like this. most often like this. sure we can all agree that these notes are impressive. This tradition is modern, rather than one practiced in the 19th century. A question that would require an entire episode to properly explain is why can we hear a range of different voices singing the role of Violetta? Because many audiences expect the final high note as if it were written in the score, a lighter coloratura soprano is often desired in this role. But the rest of the role sits a great deal lower and requires a more lyric and at some points dramatic voice type that usually doesn't have the same flexibility and upper extension as explained by conductor Antonio Papano and soprano Rene Fleming. It's often said, Rene, that the role of Violetta requires three different sopranos. Vocal fireworks in one act, dramatic singing in the second, in the last act, lyrical soft singing. How do you see that? It's very true, actually. You know, the the the, the first act is is this coloratura of role, and and of course the first aria is so incredibly difficult. The second act is definitely um, the most dramatic, and the and the it's really a, the meat and potatoes of this opera of this role. And the third act is so beautifully lyric and fragile and mm -hmm. vulnerable. Um, so completely three different types of vocal writing. Our modern preference for a climactic high note at the end of Sempre Libera sometimes demands that a different voice than can best convey the entire role of Violetta is cast. Will Crutchfield, a bel canto performance specialist, explains the history behind our contemporary expectation for a high note at the end of a bel canto aria. 
On early records, he says, the preoccupation with interpolated high notes had not reached its later peaks. Singers with good high notes often added them, but many recordings of the Pagliacci prologue Largo al Factotum, Sempre Libera, La Donna e Mobile, and other favorite arias lack the familiar extra high notes. These, like the standard coloratura variations of Una Voce Poco Fa and the Lucia Mad scene, are mostly products of the 1920s and 30s, when Italian conductors and coaches set about the task of establishing more or less fixed texts for surviving Italian operas from the period of improvisation. It is true that in some of these operas, not including La Traviata, Verdi wrote a held top note at the end of the cabaletta, as we heard in Trovatore. Nevertheless, as we heard in Sutherland and Price's interpretations, the practices that occur to obtain this note in the 20th century are not what Verdi would have heard. As Crutchfield reiterates, the practice of dropping out for several bars of the coda to save strength for a final annihilating top note is strictly a 20th century innovation dating from after World War I. Although exciting, the decision to drop bars would be considered a puntatura. Not to pick on Kalas, but in the same recording we heard earlier, she does not sing the cadences. Instead, she drops out after her six repeated high C's to rest, letting the orchestra perform the cadences alone. She then joins the orchestra again to cap off the aria with an octave of her own invention that leaves the orchestra simply awaiting her return to earth. from Verdi to Rossini, singers were expected to sing and maintain their tempo during the final cadences, at which point a kalas might not. Instead of one final, sustained high note, singers were expected to burst with florid virtuosity during the final cadences. In his book, Divas and Scholars, Philip Gossett explains that there are many appropriate opportunities for vocal display throughout a Rossini aria, but nowhere in his operas Nowhere in the variations he explicitly wrote for singers, nowhere in the pedagogical treatises from the first half of the 19th century, nowhere in the notebooks of Laure Santi d'Amoreau or Adelaide Kemble, nowhere in the printed editions with singers' ornaments, nowhere does one find a Rossini aria that concludes by simplifying Rossini's notation and then by having the singer drop out of the cadences, introduce a cadenza at a totally inopportune moment, and conclude with a high note. Although performers have made internal cuts in these operas since they were composed, because these particular incisions are a modern convention for the sake of showmanship, Gossett nicknamed them Vanity Cuts. We can hear an exciting Vanity Cut performed by Sutherland on the 1966 Decca recording of Rossini's Semiramide. Instead of singing the final cadences with the chorus, Sutherland rests for a moment so that she can prepare for a high E at the end of the Act One aria, Berraggio Lusinghier. Oh, 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 oh. 
Now, let's turn to a singer who chooses not to make this cut. Although in the 1992 Deutsche Grammophon recording, Cheryl Studer likes Sutherland adds a high note at the end of the same aria, unlike Sutherland, she clearly ornaments all the final cadences with the chorus, as Gossett would consider historically accurate. Gossett concludes his thoughts on vanity cuts by saying, with all the freedom to ornament, all the freedom to add cadenzas, including high notes, somehow the battle lines form over the last note of a piece, as if the audience will forget all the artistry and fireworks of an entire evening in the theatre unless reminded by a final stentorian howl. In all the many cadenzas and variations in Adelaide Kemble's notebook, filled with ornamentation for Tancredi, Il Barbier di Sevilla, Norma, Lucia di Lamamur, and operas by Mercadante and Pacini, there is not a single example of this practice. In the music of Rossini, it is simply an anachronism, sometimes a pleasant one perhaps, but still an anachronism. Although from where one sits in the audience, it can be hard to notice controversies like whether or not one should add an interpolated high note, these arguments do impact the way we see bel canto operas performed. Of course, Sutherland and Bonning are not completely to blame. Rather, they performed the bel canto repertoire as was expected, at a time when no one really knew how these works might have been once performed. They simply knew less about their performance history, and depended on traditional examples. We can trace these examples back to the middle of the 20th century, when in 1958, the most revered of bel canto conductors, Tullio Serafin, wrote a treatise to explain the ways he thought bel canto operas should be performed, based on what he called tradition. The name of this book was Tullio Serafin and Alceo Toni, Style, Traditions, and Conventions of Italian Opera of the 18th and 19th Centuries. Following more archival research, scholars like Gossett claim that Serafin's book was part of a series of defensive maneuvers undertaken by the publishing company Casa Ricordi to respond to the charges that their printed scores of Verdi's operas were filled with mistakes. By invoking the myth of continuous performance tradition, Serafin sought to justify then-current 1950s practice as both authentic and ideal. Despite the fact that we've known for decades that these cuts are anachronistic, Serafin's severe suggestions for bel canto performance, captured on numerous records, including several with Kalas, are still used by traditionalists today. The first of Serafin's recommendations states that cuts do not change the equilibrium of the formal design, but serve to avoid pedestrian, absolutely useless repetitions. These useless repetitions are the very ones that the composers meant to be ornamented so as to not sound pedestrian. By turning this... Oh, <laughs> 
to this. Second, he suggests that performers should trim cadenzas, which he describes as efflorescences provoked by the exhibitionistic demands of singers. We saw in part one that these were expected by the composer. Third, he writes that performers should eliminate or shorten concluding cabalettas, which are of little musical worth and are inopportune, damaging the necessary, rapid, and natural development of the action. Without historical reason, we should not assume that these composers were obeying a tired convention, and that we need to save them from themselves. As we've heard, these cabalettas offered performers the opportunity to excite audiences with sheer vocal ability more than anywhere else in a given opera. For some more perspective on Serafine Katz, I'd like to quote at length what scholar Robert E. Seletsky has to say about Kalas's use of ornamentation from the Divina Records website. Curiously, in the cold light of scholarly reality, he says, Kalas's external attitude toward opera was often frustratingly unadventurous and ill-informed. Not only was she content to observe so-called traditional cuts in standard operas, even in studio recordings, mechanically defending their necessity in order to keep the action moving. But her 1950s mentors, especially Tullio Serafine, to whom she was most devoted, introduced further cuts, to which Kalas never objected, than had been taken in many four-minute acoustical and electrical recordings. For example, the second verses of Vien Diletto from Puritani and Addio del Passato from La Traviata were recorded by Luisa Tetrazzini in 1912 and 1913, respectively but are never heard in Kalas's reversions. The frequently stated motivation for cuts in 1950s performances and recordings was fear that listeners would find the music unfamiliar and become impatient. Such a proposition requires one to believe that in under 40 years, opera lovers had forgotten an entire repertory and had become bored with the performance traditions it shared with standard works. To better understand the cuts that Seletsky is referring to, Let's compare the internationally renowned Italian coloratura soprano Luisa Tetrazzini's version of Elvira's Act I cabaletta Vien Diletto in Iporitani with Callas's rendition. In Tetrazzini's 1912 recording, you will notice that she sings the initial melody and then ornaments its repeat. Thank you. 
Contrast that with the 1953 EMI recording with Kalas conducted by none other than Seraphine. As you may have noticed, Kalas omits the repeat and with it the opportunity to ornament. Although Seletsky suggests otherwise, 
it was not so uncommon for singers during Tetrazzini's time to skip the repeat, like Kalas. One possible reason for this might have been the limits of recording at the turn of the century, which was then inaccurately interpreted as tradition by later performers. To illustrate this point, let's hear Marcella Sembrix's 1904 recording. You might find it interesting to note that she was the Metropolitan Opera's first Elvira in Ipoditani, Violetta in La Traviata, Amina in La Sanambula, Gilda in El Rigoletto, Marguerite in Les Huguenots, and Rosina in Il Barbieri di Sevilla. Even Amalita Galicurci, one of the most famous sopranos of the early 20th century, didn't sing the repeat. Like Sembrich, you'll notice in this 1920 recording that Galicurci ornaments the initial melody as if it were a repeat, but then she goes even further by adding a long cadenza like the one in Lucia's Mad Scene. Thank you. 
Although one might argue that Kalas never listened to Tetrazzini's recordings, as Seletsky notes, we can hear how Kalas produces almost the same ornaments as Tetrazzini during the repeat in Amina's final cabaletta, A non giunge, in La Sanambula. Let's listen to how Tetrazzini embellishes her 1911 performance. Here is Kalas on the 1957 EMI recording of La Sanambula, conducted not by Serafine, but Antonio Votto. you hear the similarity between their interpretations? Although Seletsky makes it appear as if other singers were ornamenting this passage differently, many singers before and after Tetrazzini included the same embellishments, including Gallicurci.
contemporary singers such as Cecilia Bartoli on the 2008 Decca recording of La Sonambula have demonstrated that this passage can be sung in many different ways, as was most likely done in the 19th century. By exploring some of the flaws in Callas's ornamentation, I don't mean to deny Callas's greatness. It's impossible to ignore that we are indebted to her for popularizing and bringing a dramatic flair to bel canto operas, until then considered only coloratura showpieces, including Lucia di Lammermoor, La Sanambula, and I Puritani. Rather, my hope is to show that Callas was a product of a particular tradition of performative thought that wasn't the same as Rossini, Bellini, or Donizetti's. Selensky explains that, in every performance in Vien di Letto, Callas cuts the second verse and coda altogether, jumping to an interpolated E-flat, which then becomes the focal point, actually distorting the structure of the cabaletta and extinguishing any sense of Bellini's real compositional style in favor of a self-indulgent, anachronistic, vocal pyrotechnic fashion. Although it's hard to imagine the Seraphine and Callas recordings without the fast-paced cuts and annihilating high notes, one can't help but wonder what kind of embellishments they might have created if they knew what we know now. Variations would have given these musical geniuses the opportunity to have multiple interpretations of a single passage, expanding the range of interpretations we could hear on record or in the opera house. Unfortunately, Due to the myths of tradition that Serafin purported as historical fact, Callas acquired the title of a bel canto specialist, triggering many performers after her to copy the same inaccuracies for decades that we have explored in this episode. Before completing this discussion on performing bel canto, I want to speak a bit about two rather unknown bel canto composers today that were briefly mentioned earlier in this episode, Giovanni Pacini and Saviero Mercadante. These two composers were as famous as Bellini and Donizetti in the early 19th century, but their operas have unfortunately been forgotten with time. In their works, we can hear the same practices of ornamentation that we've explored in this episode. Thankfully, Opera Rara has made it their mission to revive operatic treasures such as these and record them in their entirety. I would like to share with you one of my favorite excerpts from Pacini's Maria Regina d'Inghilterra, composed in 1843. Mary Stewart is expertly realized by Nelly Mirciu in her Act to Cabaletta, La Corona Che Cigne e Mio Crine. Remember that Mirciu won't begin ornamenting the original melody until it returns after the middle section with the chorus that ends with her elaborate cadenza.
As we can hear in this excerpt, like the majority of operas written before the middle of the 19th century, Pacini also encouraged the singer to partake in the compositional process by adding cadenzas and variations. Without a time machine, we can never really know what these bel canto operas might have sounded like when they were performed in the 19th century, but as I've tried to show you, scholars can make some educated guesses. At the end of the day, though, opera is meant for its audience and their aesthetic tastes. I hope by comparing these recordings, you can now imagine the multitude of interpretations possible in these operas and appreciate the differences between them. Thank you for tuning in to part two of Performing Bel Canto, do's, don'ts, and maybes. To conclude, I'd like to share with you one more cabaletta. Hopefully by now you haven't had enough of them. You may be surprised to note that the performer in this excerpt does not embellish the repeat. In fact, I have yet to find a recording of this work with variations. However, I've chosen this excerpt because it's from an opera called Orazzi e Corazzi, composed in 1846 by the second of the two unknown composers I mentioned before, Mercadante. Here is the shamefully underrated and underrecorded soprano, Janet Price, performing Camilla's Act I Cabaletta for Opera Rara in 1975. If I could bring only one opera with me to a desert island, it would probably be this one.
That was Matthew Timmermans talking about the do's, don'ts, and maybes of bel canto. Sincere and heartfelt thanks to Matthew for taking us on such an in-depth and fascinating exploration of the history of singing this summer. Matthew will be back with us lecturing live and in person here at Lincoln Center in January and February discussing Singers of the Ring to prepare us for this season's performances of Wagner's Ring Cycle at the Met. The course is almost sold out, so act fast if you are interested in attending. Visit metguild.org lectures for more info. We'll be back next week with our first episode of the new opera season. Until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.